I've been reading through the Old Testament lately and reading through the book of 1 Samuel. If you read through 1 Samuel, it's all about King David. But King David was in an interesting situation as he had been anointed to be the future king while there was still another king on the throne. A king who had become filled with jealousy. But this young anointed David had an ally, a close friend in the name of Jonathan. Jonathan was a close friend to David and even though his father, Jonathan, was Saul's son who was the current reigning king, he had given allegiance and loyalty to David. He was a true friend of the Christ, the anointed of David. So much that there's an occasion where David and Jonathan actually even enter into covenant and Jonathan gives David his robe. Now we might read that in our 2022 ears and think, well, that was nice for him to give him his jacket. But you have to understand, Jonathan was in line to be king. And by him taking off his robe, it was a very symbolic picture of him saying, David, you are the rightful heir to the throne. You will be king. I will not contend this. I will subject myself to this. I am your friend, and I will support you. We say, Matt, that's very nice for you to share your morning devotions with us, but what does that have to do with John chapter 15? I would suggest it has everything to do with John chapter 15. Because the kind of friendship that Jesus talks about in John chapter 15 is a unique kind of friendship. It is a royal friendship. It is a friendship that when we hear the word friendship, we we are often ignorant of. When we hear the word friends, we might talk about our BFF. Or we may say somebody friend requested me or friended me on Facebook and we have thousands of friends on Facebook, most of whom we have no idea who they are. And so there's this notion of friendship that floats around in the world. Um, But the Bible, when the Bible speaks of friendship, there is that common friendship that we would talk about in our own culture of camaraderie, love with one another, uh, of two individuals that they have towards one another. But there is also a category of friendship that includes that love, but also is one of loyalty. Loyalty to a superior. In fact, one helpful commentator, he's especially helpful when it comes to background materials on the New Testament, especially the Gospel of John, his commentary is two very fat volumes that will break your toe if you drop them on it. Craig Keener, he says this concerning friends. Friends of powerful patrons were their political dependents. One of the most common uses of friendship in our literary sources refers to political dependence on a royal patron. This was true among the ancient Greeks and for friendship with Caesar in the Roman imperial period. And and there's evidence that John uses the term friendship in this kind of way. Do you remember in John chapter 19 when the religious leaders wanted Pontius Pilate to crucify Jesus? And it's in that context in John 19, verse 2. And as a result, it says, Pilate made efforts to release Jesus. Pilate saw that Jesus was an innocent man. But the Jews cried out saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. In other words, the way in which John uses this term friend or records the use of this term friend in John chapter 19 is clearly more than just Caesar and Pilate being BFFs. There was something political going on here, something of a 
demonstration of disloyalty to Caesar that the Jewish people were questioning if Pilate were to release Jesus. That's the idea of friendship that I believe that John is communicating in John chapter 15. Friendship to the king. So then obviously the other question is, does John speak of Jesus as king? Well, and he most certainly does. Throughout the Gospel of John, we could look at many references, but you remember that one of the first encounters that a person has with Jesus recorded in the Gospel of John was Nathaniel, where his buddies went to go get him, and, and, and Nathaniel responds to Jesus after he says that he saw Nathaniel under the fig tree. Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. A great confession. Another little bit more veiled reference is in John chapter 10. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Shepherds in the, or, uh, kings in the ancient world were called shepherds. And so when Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, it's not merely this imagery of him taking care of sheep, but it's the idea of him being the king taking care of his subjects. And so all that is kind of the backdrop as we zero in now on John chapter 15 where Jesus says a shocking statement, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Which to our 2022 ears sounds weird, right? I mean, imagine, you know, rewind the clock back to your days in high school and you're a freshman and you go through the lunch line and you grab your lunch tray and you're kind of looking for a seat and imagine somebody standing large stands up and says, you could be my friend if you do what I command you to do. <laughs> Those are the kinds of people you tell your children to run from, Right? But Jesus says that, obviously. So Jesus is not a big bully. He's not a lunch table bully. But he is a king. And he requires loyalty. And so this is the kind of friendship. So the rest of this morning, that was all introduction in case you're wondering. The rest of this morning, we're going to look at four characteristics of Jesus' royal friends. Four characteristics. The first is Jesus' royal friends love. We actually see that at the beginning and the end of this section. Notice verse 12 says, This is my command, my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then notice the kind of the bookend at the end of this section of verse 17 is, This I command you that you love one another. So this is something that Jesus says is characteristic of his friends. It is an obligation that Jesus' disciples are to love one another. Notice this last phrase in verse 12, just as I have loved you. And then if we were to ask the question, what kind of love is this? Is this just kind of a, a, you know, a good feeling towards one another? Notice verse 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, than that one lay down his life for his friends. The kind of love that Jesus is talking about is a sacrificial kind of love towards others. Now, if you've been following or studying the Gospel of John, you know that this isn't the first time that Jesus has given this command. In fact, if you were to go back to John 13, 34, and 35, just after Jesus has scrubbed Peter, James, John, Andrew's toe jam and all that as he went around the table and washed their feet, he says to them in 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. And again, we read that and think, well, that doesn't sound like a very new commandment. Well, this is the sense in which it's new. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples 
if you have love for one another. The newness of this command is that the standard of it is Jesus' love for them. And how does Jesus love? He loves through a bloody crucifixion, a sacrificial kind of love where he lays down his life for his friends. And so we could, I think, in some ways substitute that last statement in verse 35. By this all men will know that you are my disciples. With By this all men will know that you are my friends by your love for one another. And you know this isn't anything new in the New Testament. In fact, the apostle John himself, uh, he regularly, he spoke about love a lot, right? Sometimes he's called the apostle of love. Listen to some of these verses in 1 John. 1 John 2, 9 through 11. The one who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. In other words, those who hate their brothers That's evidence that they're not one of Jesus' disciples. They're not in the family. 1 John 3.10 By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. 1 John 3.14.15 We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has, ab- has eternal life abiding in him. And we can go on and on, right? You remember we studied First John some years ago, but John's burden is that one of the characteristics, the DNA of those who have been born again, the DNA of those who are friends of Jesus, The DNA of those who are disciples of Jesus, and I'm using all those terms interchangeably, a disciple, a friend, one who has been born again, are that they love other friends of Jesus. And so this is very important. And again, we have to define what is love. Is love always being nice to other people? No. Parents love their children, but sometimes they got to give them a whooping. Does it mean always giving people what they want? No. But love, here's a helpful, I think, simple definition. Love sacrificially seeks the good of others. It sacrificially seeks the good of others. And to be sure, some people are easier to love than others. But nonetheless, we all have a responsibility to love one another. And I know so many of you practice this well. I feel like the past month, the whole small army of loving people has been marshaled to come alongside people in the midst of difficulty, sorrow, and suffering. But many of us, I think, can still grow much in this area. And if you find yourself struggling to reach out in love towards others, Jesus gives us tremendous motivation here. He says, love one another. How? As I have loved you. You see, this is often one of the temptations when it comes to loving other people and reaching out and dying to ourselves. There's that, that, that impulse to say, but what about me? Who's going to love me? But if you're one of Jesus' disciples, you are well loved. Jesus has your back. He will care for you. You don't have to wonder who's going to care for you. You can go broke, abandoned in love towards others because Jesus will care for you. 
Even if nobody else on planet Earth cares for you. Even if nobody else loves you. Even if nobody else reaches out with a helping hand. He loves you. He will care for you. Also, some of you might be like me. A registered loner. Who's far more content to sit in, you know, a vacation for me is a, a room by myself filled with books. Amen. I am not a naturally outgoing people person. But yet, I, like you, am still called to love other people. Love is out. Going, Love gives of self. Love's willing to die to self and, and the potential that you're going to embarrass yourself in conversation or there's going to be some kind of awkward silence. But love says, I don't care about myself. I, I'm going to reach out and talk to this person. I'm going to move out towards them. I'm not going to only talk with those I'm comfortable with talking with because, you know, they're in my circle and I know them and they know me. But love says, no. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reach out towards somebody and love them. And then consider the way in which Jesus, because we're supposed to love like Jesus loved, consider the way in which Jesus loved. We, well, obviously, within this context, he says he gave his life. A greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. But, but, but let's think of the people that Jesus loved, starting with the one who penned this giant book we call the Gospel of John. You see, we call John the apostle of love, but that ain't how he started. Let me give you a little anecdote to remind you of it. Jesus and his disciples are passing through Samaria. Now, Samaria was uh, filled with uh, basically people who were half Jewish, half Gentile. And there was tremendous animosity ethnic partiality, in our words today, we would call it racism, that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. They hated one another. And Jesus and his disciples are passing through, and they cannot find a place to stay. Because every response, you ain't from these parts, are you? You better just carry on. Jesus and his disciples are not welcome in Samaria. And do you remember what James and John's response was? Jesus, I got this great idea. Remember Elijah in the Old Testament when that general came and he just called down fire from heaven? And like a nuclear explosion happened right in front of him and killed that pagan, dirty Gentile general? I could, why don't you let us do that now? You know, we just call down fire from heaven. And you remember Jesus responded, he said, no, no, no. I, I did not come to destroy, but I came to save. But th- that was John, right? The same John who over and over says, love one another, love one another, love one another. That's not how John started out. He wanted to nuke one another. He wanted to drop bombs from heaven. Yet Jesus persevered in his love towards John. How about Peter? Peter was not a very lovable, nor probably a very likable guy. Very impulsive, always opening his mouth, didn't know how to shut up, correcting Jesus. And yet Jesus persevered in love with him. That's a good challenge for us. This is what we're called to, this kind of persevering love with one another. So the friends of Jesus love other friends of Jesus. The friends of Jesus are also loyal to Jesus. Notice verse 14. Look at the text. Jesus says, you are my friends if 
you do what I command you. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Again, for our ears, we don't think of friendship like that, right? Which signifies that this is this kind of royal friendship, much like Jonathan who took his robe off and gave it to David and said, you are the rightful king. I am here to support you, to die for you, to lay down my life for you because you are the king. I will do what you tell me to do. In a very real sense, that's what happens when you become a Christian, right? Jesus, you're the king. My life is subject to you. I am now one of your loyal servants. I will now do what you command. You tell me to jump, I will ask how high. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command. And obviously, clearly, one of the commands within this immediate context is to love one another. But it includes all that Jesus commanded. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Remember that great commission in Matthew 28? Go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what? Teaching them to observe all, Jesus says, that I have commanded you. When one becomes a disciple, when one becomes a friend of Jesus, the crown comes off of your head and it is placed on Jesus' head. The royal robes on your back, they go off of your back and onto Jesus' back. And you then subject yourself in loyalty to him. To him. R.C. Sproul tells a story of Chuck Colson on one occasion. If you're familiar with Chuck Colson, he... He was uh, in the Nixon administration, and uh, he was part of the Watergate scandal, and he was uh, sent to prison, did some hard time, and was converted to Jesus in prison. And he gets out of prison, he's giving a speech at an Ivy League school, and uh, as he begins his address, somebody, a heckler in the crowd, interrupts his speech and says, how could you have defended Richard Nixon? Everybody was shocked at this heckler. And Chuck Colson simply responded, he was my friend. And a hush came over the crowd. Because even though it might not have been legitimate or right to defend Richard Nixon and all the scandal that brought that Watergate controversy, everybody could sympathize with the reality of allegiance and loyalty to a friend. R.C. Sproul comments, instantly the students were on their feet applauding because Colson had struck a nerve with that comment. He understood that in this wasteland of broken, he understood that in this wasteland of broken relationships, loyalty, loyalty to Jesus. And loyalty to Jesus in the midst of tremendous opposition and even enemies of Jesus. Notice, if we were to keep reading down in verse 18, verses which we'll get to, Lord willing, next time. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember that the world, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. What is Jesus saying here? He, he, Jesus, again, the context, he's going to leave his disciples. He's about to die on the cross. The very next morning, he's giving them instructions about who his true friends are and what they're going to encounter in this world. Namely, the world is going to hate them. That they are going to have to choose between loyalty to Jesus and acceptance with the world. 
And the world here signifies the, the world of unbelief, the unbelieving system of rebellion against God, against Jesus. So Jesus says, the world's going to hate you. But those who keep my commands, one of the characteristics of Jesus' friends is they are loyal to, loyal to Jesus. Friends, I don't need to tell you that being a Christian these days isn't going to help you to win friends and influence people. The kinds of stuff that we believe in the public square are regarded as hate speech, bigotry, and yet these are the things that Jesus tells us to believe. These are the things that Jesus commands us to obey. That we don't say, well, Jesus, you know, I like what you have to say over here, but I don't really like it over here. No. We don't have that option as followers of Jesus. In fact, Christianity 101 for Jesus was this. If anyone wishes to come after me, Mark 8, 35, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, fellows, if you want to be one of my followers, one of my disciples, it may very well cost you your life. What I'm requiring, Jesus says, is allegiance even unto death. That's Christianity 101. Now, obviously not every Christian seals the testimony of their loyalty to Jesus with blood. But many have. And many will. And many are today. We may not see it. We've lived in a bubble of religious freedom in this country for the past couple hundred years. But all you have to do is travel to the Middle East, travel to parts of Asia. And there's a cost for following Jesus. And Jesus' followers are loyal to him. They keep his commandments no matter what the cost. Thirdly, Jesus' friends not only love other friends, they're loyal to Jesus. Third, they learn from Jesus. Notice what Jesus says here in verse 15. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I call you friends, for all things I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Jesus gives a contrast here between one who is a slave and one who is a friend. Now, you are familiar that the, the scriptures do often refer to followers of Jesus as his slaves. He is the master. In fact, the, one of the great salvation terms, redemption, is the idea of being purchased as a slave out of slavery to sin in this world, but that doesn't mean you're entirely free because then you become a slave of Jesus which is a far better slavery in fact in the same context we, we read it already but in verse 15 it says or, I'm sorry verse uh, 20 remember this word I said to you a slave is not greater than his master if they persecuted me they will persecute you also if they kept my word they will keep yours also in other words Jesus is saying if they persecuted me your master and you're my slave, they're going to persecute you, you also. So there is a sense in which Christians, believers, are slaves. In fact, it's one of the most common ways in which the apostles refer to themselves as a slave of Jesus or a servant of Jesus. But Jesus is highlighting that with the metaphor of slave, while it communicates something of the truth of being a follower of Jesus, namely 
submission to Jesus, loyalty to Jesus, the fact that Jesus owns you, it doesn't communicate everything that the metaphor, that the metaphor could communicate, that the, the metaphor of friend communicates, namely intimacy, closeness, self-disclosure. A master doesn't tell a slave everything he's doing. In fact, if you've ever served in the military, you know that you are on a need-to-know basis. And what's the next part of the phrase? And there's some things you don't need to know. Why? Because being in the military is probably the closest form to modern slavery in our country. You are owned by the United States government. You go where they tell you, when you want to. It's, it, they're the boss. They call the shots. You signed up for it. Okay? Well, those who are friends of Jesus are not only subject to Jesus as slaves, but they also have privileges of friendship. In fact, one commentator says, friends of the king or friends of the emperor, at all times they had access to the king. They even had the right to come to his bedchamber at the beginning of the day. He talked to them before he talked to his generals, before he talked to his rulers and his statesmen. The friends of the king were those who had the closest, most intimate connection with him. And this is where I think there's, there's a lot more overlap with our understanding of friendship in our culture is the idea of intimacy, closeness, togetherness. That while friendship with Jesus is one of loyalty where we subject ourselves to the king, there's also privileges. Namely, Jesus says, all things I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. I'm telling you everything, everything the Father has revealed to me in my humanity, I will divulge to you and give instruction to you. And and this is, friends, this is exactly what we see in John chapter 13 through 17. Jesus spilling it all out, telling them everything they need to know to live a life that honors the Lord as he is about to depart from them. He cares for them. He's intimately telling him all the plans and purposes for planet Earth. He teaches them about how they're supposed to live, what they're supposed to do, the great mission of the church to make disciples of all the nations, the reality that he's going to come back and and claim them for himself in his second coming, that he's going to send the Holy Spirit who's going to teach them and and give them revelation from God in the scriptures. There's all kinds of things that Jesus tells them. Why? They're his friends. They're his friends. Growing up, I shared a room with my older brother. We would often stay up late at night talking with one another, sharing our dreams our goals in life, our aspirations, our likes or dislikes. In a similar way, Jesus has friends. And he shares everything with them. He's given us this, this volume of scriptures, you know. Jesus didn't just send a little email, just a little text message. Look at this book. There's so much in here he's told us about himself that he wants us to know in everything that is needful for us to know. He's granted to us, according to Second Peter 1, he's granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Anything you need, he has told you. Anything that's for your spiritual good and benefit, He's given it to us in scriptures. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God can look everywhere else for something that he needs. No. So that the man of God may be adequate, thoroughly furnished for every good work. 
He's given us his spirit to indwell in us, to correct us, to help us to to be convicted when we go wrong, to help bear fruit in our hearts. He's given us the church family to come alongside us, to encourage us, to correct us, to exhort us. He's given us all that we need as a true friend. He's made sure we're well taken care of. In fact, it is interesting, when, we, when you look at the scriptures, as far as I can tell, in the Bible, there's only two people who are referred to as friends of God. One of them is Abraham. Remember, James records Abraham was a friend of God, and he's picking up on the language of Isaiah and the chronicler in, in uh, I think, Second Chronicles. But there's one other person who's referred to as a friend, and, and I think... That might be what John is alluding to with the kind of Old Testament background as he records Jesus saying this to his friends. I think, well, the other guy is Moses. Listen to Exodus thirty-three eleven. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face just as a man speaks to his friend. And one of the things, one of the reasons why I think Jesus may be alluding to Moses here and the privilege that his own friends have is because over and over, Jesus is declaring himself to be the God of the Exodus who discloses himself to his disciples. He is, after all, the light of the world, not the glory cloud that was the light for the Israelites. He is the manna that came down from heaven. He is the one who, in the midst of the waters, tells his disciples in John 6, I am. And now he's face to face with his disciples. And he's telling them, you are my friends. How do you know that you're my friends? You're on the inside. I tell you, everything that my father has disclosed to me. And by way of direct implication, if you are one of Jesus' followers, you are his friend. You are in, on the inner circle. You have the knowledge of the scriptures. You have uh, the voice of Jesus as he speaks to us in the scriptures. You have a relationship with him. You have that intimacy where you can talk with him. That's the end of verse 16. So that we can ask anything in his name and he gives it to us. You can talk with him and he talks with you. I mean, after all, that's what a relationship is, right? It involves communication. So, first characteristic of Jesus' friends is that they love other friends. The second is that they are loyal to Jesus. They keep his commands Third is that they learn from Jesus. Fourth, I saved the best for last, is they're loved by Jesus. We see this in verse 16, and we also see it earlier on when I glossed over it in verse 13 and 14. In verse 16, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you, And appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. So that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. Jesus, and and you you read this and you ask yourself, why, why would Jesus say this? You did not choose me, I chose you. I think... Jesus is saying this because he he has already said, you are my friends if you do what I command. And these disciples might be tempted to think, like Peter, we obviously see within this very context, Jesus, I'm your homie. I am in it to the finish. And and to say that in a kind of proud, self-righteous way, as if they were the ones who initiated this relationship, as if they were the ones who were holding on to this relationship, as if they were the ones who were going to keep up their end of the bargain. But Jesus wants to make it clear, no, let's get this straight here. 
I'm the one who initiated this relationship. I chose you. You didn't choose me. I appoint you to bear fruit. Now we read this and we see, okay, this is interesting here. You did not choose me, but I chose you. What, what does Jesus mean by this? Does he mean like to be those immediate disciples of Jesus, to be those future apostles? And, and certainly I think there's a sense in which that's true. What, what was different about the way in which Jesus called his students or his disciples to him was different than the way rabbis did in the ancient world. In the ancient world, a disciple or a student chose their rabbi, just like you might choose what school you, do, you go to. But Jesus instead, he chose them. But I want to probe a little bit deeper. Is this only speaking of those first disciples or is there a broader principle here? And I think it, it, it includes that initial calling them like he called Matthew, like he called James and John, but it's fuller than that. And one of the reasons why I say that is because when we read earlier on this section where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches, we don't say, well, that was for the disciples. That's not for me. So let me just move on to John 16. No, no. You say, okay, Jesus is the vine. I'm one of the branches, right? Because you understand that while Jesus is teaching immediately to his disciples, his initial uh, 11 in this context, and some things are only applicable for them, you also realize that John is recording this decades after Jesus died, rose from the dead, and, and ascended back to heaven, and he's writing to the church. And so you, you kind of have to think through what is what here is specific only for the apostles and what is for all Christians. And the very fact that the next phrase in verse 16 when he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to do what? Bear fruit. I think this hints at the reality that, that Jesus and John recorded Jesus is teaching a broader principle. Not only did Jesus initiate this rabbi-student relationship, but he initiated this saving relationship, this relationship of bearing fruit. And this is exactly what we see in the Gospel of John, right? Remember John chapter 6 and verse 37 and following when Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And everyone who comes to me I will in no wise cast down. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that all that the Father has given me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. That Jesus says that there is these people who have been given by the Father to Jesus and Jesus will die on their behalf and they will come to Jesus. Or in the language of Jesus in John chapter 10, I have, I think it's in verse 16, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. They will hear my voice and they will follow me and, they will be, and we will become one flock with one shepherd. One of these days I'll get this microphone fixed. But not today. In other words, what Jesus is saying, what John is recording, is that all friends of Jesus, not only those initial friends, are those who experience God's wonderful electing grace, his choosing grace that he would pluck them from the fire, choose to set his love upon them. Not because of anything good in them. Notice here, it's not Jesus sees how fruitful they are and says, I'm going to choose you. You look like you'll be a loyal friend of mine. No, no, no. It's actually the exact opposite. I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit. In other words, fruit is the result of Jesus' choosing, it's not the cause of his choosing. Which should sound familiar because the Apostle Paul says it like this in Ephesians 1, 3 and following. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places just as 
He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons so that we might be to the praise of His glory. He chooses us before we were even born, not because of anything good in us, but to produce that which he wants in us. Romans 9, 11 through 13. For although the twins, this is talking about Jacob and Esau. Twins, you thought your kids bicker. They were bickering before they were born. Before the twins had yet been born and had done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand not because of works but because of him who calls it was said to her the older will serve the younger just as it is written Jacob I love but Esau I hated. God chose to shower his love and his promise upon Jacob. Was it because Jacob was a swell guy? No, man, that guy was a huckster. He was shady, but yet God chose to shower his love upon him. We say, okay, well, that, this is a choosing, but it, it's, you know, the Bible doesn't teach that he chooses people for salvation, maybe for ministry. Well, 2 Corinthians 2.13. But we should always give thanks to you, to God for you, beloved brethren, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. And so, friends, this highlights that it's not based upon anything in us. Now, did you choose Jesus if you've chosen Jesus? Yeah, you did. But what Jesus is telling us and what John is recording, you chose him. Why? Because he chose you. Or in the language of the Apostle John in in 1 John 4, we love. Why? Because he first loved us. It's all of grace, my friends. It's God and the wonder of his grace and kindness setting his love upon the unlovable. And this is huge because this then motivates all the other. This is part of the benefit of being a friend of Jesus. You've been chosen by Jesus. And this motivates you to be loyal to Jesus and to love other friends of Jesus. But that's not all. I glossed over it. But notice, remember back in verse 13 and 14, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Obviously here, Jesus is referring to his dying love for his friends. His sacrificial love. So that not only does he in in eternity past choose to set his love upon some and and appoint them to bear fruit, fruit that remains, he also, wonder of wonders, comes into space and time, clothes himself in a human body, lives for 33 and a half years and dies on the cross as a substitute on their behalf so that they can have eternal life with him forever. Greater love has no one than this, that a man lays down his life for his friends. Friend, if you're sitting here this morning and you are a friend of Jesus, you have trusted in Jesus, you are loyal to Jesus, On the authority of God's word, I tell you, you are the recipient of the greatest love that exists in this universe. Not only Jesus' electing love, but his dying love upon the cross. You, my friend, are greatly loved. 
Now this is important. Because it's often in the context of life that we experience the hardships of life and we start to grumble and complain. Nobody loves me. But I want to tell you it's not true, my friend. It's not true. Jesus suspended between heaven and earth is eternal evidence that you are loved. That he cared enough to die for you to deal with your greatest problem, namely your guilt before God. He cares for you. Paul argues in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If God gave the greatest of gift in Jesus to you on the cross, how can you doubt him for any lesser gift? Friends, he loves you. If you doubt his love, then to be sure you are grieving him. Because he's done plenty to demonstrate his love for you. You need to press into that love and let that love be a motivation for you to move out in love towards others. But some of you may be sitting here this morning and you're not sure, am I a friend of Jesus or am I not? Well, we've talked about some of the characteristics. Is there a love in your heart for other believers? Do you really want what's good for other believers? Is there a loyalty to Jesus where you, like Jonathan, have taken the crown off of your head and the royal robes off of your back and you've, you've crowned Jesus as king? You've said, he's my Lord. And you've also trusted in his dying love for you upon the cross. If you've done that, my friend, you are a friend of Jesus. But if you haven't, the offer is on the table. You can become a friend of Jesus even this morning if you but take that crown off of your head and put it on Jesus' head. Say, Jesus, you're the boss now. And if you but humbly come before him with a, a very simple but humble trust and say, Jesus, I trust in what you did on the cross on my behalf. You are my only hope to get to heaven. I entrust my life to you. If you do that, you don't, you don't have to even move out of your seat. You can do it right where you're at. He promises that you become one of his friends. And then you will realize, I did not choose him. He chose me. And now he appoints me to bear fruit. May God help you to do that if you've not. Let's pray.